Well, Hebrews is where we are. We started our journey through Hebrews about the first of the year. We find ourselves today in the first six, chap- first six verses of chapter number 3. So if you will find your place there, I'm going to begin reading in just one moment in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter number 3. You can tell uh, after reading this guy for some time, you can kind of see the context to which he was writing. There was obviously uh, some fascination, maybe to the point of being spiritually unhealthy, with angels. And we see that because he mentions angels over and over again, gives a pretty long discourse in verse number 5, starting in verse number 5 of chapter number 1. And he uh, really uses it as a springboard for really lifting up the supremacy of Jesus Christ and showing that He is supreme... Than uh, and higher than angels. Uh, he comes back to that. Uh, he hits it in verse 16 of chapter 2. Uh, he says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels. So he's constantly buttressing against this idea of angels with his high Christology. And we also can pick up by looking at today's passage that there was some type of elevation of Moses. And it was not uncommon in the primitive church. Moses was held in very high esteem. Uh, He was considered to be the establisher of the community of faith of Israel. And he had also assumed spiritual responsibility for that community. Uh, So Moses was still handled in very high esteem. So after in the first two chapters, him stressing the superiority of Christ to angels... In our verses that are before us today, we're going to see it's kind of a comparison, contrast between Jesus and Moses and ultimately showing the superiority of Christ to Moses. So here we go. That being the context, let me begin reading in verse 1, chapter number 3. Our writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Well, man, what a bright guy this is. We've talked over and over about his level of intelligence and education and how he is a master of logic. And you can see how almost every paragraph is some, uh, some portion of a logical argument. It's either the conclusion to what he just said or it's the premise for what he is going to say. Therefore... One of his favorite words that you'll find used over and over again is the word therefore. Notice in verse number 14 of chapter number 2, and then he opens chapter 3 with it, and you can take your pen and just walk right on. You can see in verse number 7 of chapter 3 he does that, verse number 4, and it's showing the, 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 the logical progression which this very inspired and also educated and intelligent preacher is using as he puts this book together. So today we're going to talk about the difference between Moses, or he's going to talk about the difference between Moses and Christ, and he's going to use the analogy of the house, the house which they established, i.e. house meaning people, and the house that Jesus established. And by the way, it's pretty good for us to get our minds around this because one of the one of the uh, ecclesiastical faux pas that I hear every time I go somewhere is normally this. Somebody will stand up and pray this spiritual sounding prayer, God, it's good today to be in your house. But listen to me. Scripture never refers to bricks and mortar and 
wood and iron and carpet and chairs as the house. That is not the house of God. This physical building that we are in is not the house of God. The house of God are seated on these pews. The house of God is the people of God. But now notice he's going to use these words interchangeably as an analogy referring to us as the building in which God dwells, God's house, and then just a physical house when he talks about every house is built by someone and the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. For instance, not long ago, I was watching this guy in Panama City who is a pretty, uh, pretty top-end builder. And he met, why is everybody looking at Cliff? It wasn't, no, y'all know who it was, don't you? Uh, Cliff was in this house and he was given really a sales pitch for it. And my goodness, brother, that house you built, what was that thing? Several million dollars, right? I mean, let's just leave it at that. But it's amazing, uh, not just the worth, but the opulence of that house. But now here's where Cliff comes into the video. You know, Cliff built this house that really will cause you to drop your, 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 your jaw when you look at it. But the point of the video from Cliff's marketing standpoint is, yeah, this house is good, but I built this house. And if you want a house that's good, then you ought to consider letting me build your house. And you see, that's exactly what this writer is talking about. So let's pick up on that subject today and let's talk about the house that Jesus built and what it takes to build His house. What does it take to build the house of the Lord? Now, you can imagine if Cliff made that video and the very next guy who contracted with him to build a house on that level, if that guy moved in that house and several months after moving in, he realized there were huge problems. For instance, Cliff may have used substandard materials to build that house. What if Cliff went and got that old wall board from China that's very prone to cause mold, and about five months after move-in, this guy was having respiratory problems because he had mold on the back of his wall board. You see, if Cliff didn't use material that is up to par, then he's not going to be in the building business very long. You know what I mean? Because the word's going to get on the street that this guy can build, but he uses substandard material and you're going to have problems with it not long after you move in. So that's what this writer is talking about. What does it take? Because really what he's getting at here is the material to build the house of the Lord. Again, it's not blocks and sheetrock and wood and concrete, but the material that the Lord uses to build His house is people. People. So what does it take? What does it look like for us to be considered material that's worthy to go into the house of the Lord. What if we were faulty as that wall board? What if we were not allowing Him to build us into His image? By the way, Rebecca read that passage this morning in 1 Peter that says this, as living stones... See, there's building material. That's what you are. You are a living stone that is put in the construction process of the house of the Lord where He's going to dwell. And here, here's the reality. He's the one who makes a suitable construction material. Now, when I'm talking about being a part of the house of the Lord we got to make a distinction here. We're not talking about church membership, okay? Now, church membership and having your name on a roll is not what this author has in mind. Each one, of us ha each one of us has a station. Each one of us has a function. And if we don't man our station and fulfill our function, then will the house ultimately stand and will it stand the test of time? So... What we have to ask ourselves is, what is my station? Am I fulfilling it? What is my function in this house? Am I fulfilling that and helping this house in order to be able to do what it's supposed to do 
and that is to spread the fame of the one who built it, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this, in this scenario here, as you look at this play that he uses between Moses and Jesus, and also between a physical house and a spiritual house, what we wind up coming down with and boiling this text down to is a pretty good description of what somebody looks like who is a part of his house. What we come down with here is a pretty good profile of what someone should look like who is a member of Grace Church. All right? So let's start there and just look how he piles up all these descriptions of the material that it takes to build his house. What should I look like? What should you look like? In what areas should we be growing and developing? In what areas are we strong? In what areas do we need work? So here we go. What does it take to be a functioning, stable part of the house of the Lord? Well, in verse number 1, notice the first thing he says is this. If it, it takes consecrated people to build his house. What does it take to build his house? Well, number one, it takes consecrated people. Look with me in verse number one. Notice what he says. Here's the first description he gives of the building material. Notice what he says. Therefore, what's the second word? Holy. Holy. Now, that word means a lot of things, but the major import of that word, it means that we are consecrated. Now, consecrated is another one of those uh, $3 theological terms, and here's what it means. You see, the holiness of God refers to the total otherness of God. Have you ever come to the conclusion that God's not like us? Huh? Buddy, He's nowhere near like us, huh? You know, here, here's one of the, these little statements that I find myself saying sometimes and I cringe when I say it or when I hear folks say it. Well, if I were God, woo, <laughs> we ought not even be able to put those words together, huh? Because He is holy. He is completely other. He is separate. He is distinct. He stands apart by a great deal. He's consecrated. He stands on His own. Now, here's what's cool about it. He calls us to be with Him. Consecrated. Holy. And here's what it means for us. It means that we are set apart for a particular purpose. You remember when God was describing all those things that Moses was to build for the temple and the tabernacle, how they were to be holy? That means they were to be set apart and they were to be used for nothing other than temple service. In other words, if there was a utensil there, you couldn't just go pick up that utensil and use it for uh, uh, daily routines. That thing was set apart and it was only used, it was holy, and it was only used for temple purposes. And that's what this writer says about you and I. If we are going to be the type of people that it takes to build the house of God, do you know you just can't build a church with anybody? You can't. It takes a certain type of person with whom the Lord builds a church. And the first description is they've got to be consecrated. That means they are set apart. And they're set apart for what? They are set apart for His purpose. For whatever it is that He wants to do, that's what we are set apart for. That means life. Hey, look here. We've got life and we've got business. But the main purpose of life is that we are consecrated. By golly, when I was born again, the day ceased when my life was mine. I am no longer my own. Get this, here's what Paul says. For you have been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own boss. I no longer have the freedom to do willy-nilly whatever pleases me. I no longer have the freedom to just chase after my preferences. Because you see, when I was born again, He said, you are now holy and blameless before me. And God practically and positionally set me apart and said, now you are consecrated for my holy purposes. And you see, that's, 
where we fall short so many times today. We're trying to build a church that will stand the test of persecution and, and, and moral decay and financial collapse. We're trying to build a church that will endure with people who are not consecrated. And friend, that just won't fly. So I have to ask myself, what's the main purpose in my life? And am I living in accordance with that purpose? Am I consecrated, holy? Am I set apart for this? Hey, there's some things I like to do, you know. I have to earn a living like y'all. I love getting on a John Deere bulldozer and tearing things up. You see, that's just how I earn a living. That's not my purpose in life. My purpose in life is I'm set apart for Him. So number one, here's what it takes. If Grace Church is going to be a church that really makes a splash in this world for the glory of Christ, lives for the fame of His name, Dr. John, then the first characteristic of the building material, the people that we build a church with, the people that He brings here, they must understand this idea of I'm consecrated. I'm set apart for this. But number next, notice what else he says. Not only does it take consecrated people to build his house, but it also takes community people. Community people. Look in verse number 1. Therefore, holy brethren, and here's the word, you may want to underline it, here's what this is associated with, partakers. Do you see that word, partakers? Notice how it's plural. You know what that means? That means that we have a common experience that we share. It's not just a group of individuals. You took a bite and you took a bite and you took a bite. We all share this. We are common. That's what the word community means. It means we have this in common. Notice that word is plural. It has nothing to do with individuals. You know what? One of the most... One of the most uh, distorted Bible doctrines of today is this. We even say it wrong. We talk about the priesthood, singular, of the believer. The Bible never says it that way. It's always plural. It's priesthood of the believers. Did you hear that? Believers. Historically, it's always, it's always uh, translated plural, meaning that, hey, I'm not rightly related to God if I'm not rightly related to my community of faith, those with whom I have a common experience in which we all partook. See, that's what it takes to build a church. And man, I want to tell you, today in the United States of America, y'all know, I don't, I don't have to tell y'all this, y'all know today, that the individual has more rights than the community. And guys, it can't be that way in the church. The, 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 the individual is lifted to the place of prominence, to the, to the degree that the entire community can suffer as long as this individual prospers. And it's just not that way in the economy of God. So if we're going to be a church that makes an impact, if we're going to be a church that lasts, we've got to have a certain type of building product. We got to have a certain type of material, a certain type of person. Number one, we got to have a consecrated person. Number two, we've got to have community people. Consecrated people, community people. Look at number three, right here out of this verse. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Anybody want to guess what this next blank is before you look on the board? Say it. Called. We've got to have called people. And you see, that's what we partake of together. We partake together of this common experience being born again. We partake together of this heavenly calling. Now that word heavenly calling can mean it's a, it's a calling which proceeds from heaven or it's a calling which leads us to heaven. And you know, when the grammar allows for both, why take either or, I think both of those are true. Don't you think so? I mean, we are. It was a heavenly calling. We were called by God from heaven, but we're also called by God to heaven. So we're partakers of a heavenly calling. Do you know that is one of the primary descriptive terms of the church is the called? As a matter of fact, it's so primary. Did you know that the word for church in the Greek New Testament 
is translated as those who are called out. Ecclesia, you've probably heard that term before. It's a word that means called out. So here's what we are. We are people who are called. And we are called out of something, out of a lost and decaying world. We're called out of that. We're called out of spiritual darkness. We're called out of spiritual death. We're called into His marvelous light. And into His presence. And into the church. Now that, that puts it on a different plane. Because here's what we normally think of and we think of called. We normally think people who are called, that's like preachers. That's like missionaries. That's like those weird folk. They're, they're called. But now, hey, listen, there's no doubt about it. I, I, they are called. But can I say to you, if you've been born again, you're called too. You are called. You're called by God to be consecrated community people. That is the calling of God upon our lives collectively. And you know back in the day when I used to teach, well I still do, you know what I mean. But back in the day when I used to start with, with kids that I didn't know who, were, who had a call upon their life, a call to preach or a call to be a missionary, you know where we'd start? We'd start right there with that call. Tell me about your call. Let's get down to the heart of it. And the reason I started with that call is because of this. Friend, he hadn't called you to a picnic. He hadn't called you to, 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 to be the captain of a cruise ship. He's called you to battle. And by golly, if you can't nail down and you know in your heart that God has called you to be a pastor, if you can't nail down that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt just as good as you're standing here today that God called you to be a cross-cultural missionary, when the battle starts, you won't stay there if you're not called. You won't. But can I say, this writer applies that not just to preachers and missionaries, he applies it to church members. He applies it to those people who are the material that Christ uses to build His house. Do you know that you know that God has called you? And by golly, if you don't know that, watch me. When the heat gets turned on, you won't stay. You'll hit the eject button and you'll pop out. And here's what you'll say. By golly, I don't go to church for that. Look, none of us do. But can I say this to you? If this is the bride of Christ, if you are the apple of His eye, if you are the body of Christ, if you are the building of Christ, where do you think the devil's going to show up? Huh? Listen to me, the devil don't have any interest in the folk hanging out at the bar. He's already got them. He don't have any interest in those folk who are living for him today. He's got them. So let me tell you where he's working, folk. Let me tell you where he's at, church. He'll do everything he can to rob the glory of God from a local church that has his heart set on taking this gospel to those who don't have it. And son, if you ain't called to this, the first time feathers start getting ruffled and something goes on, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to be just like a preacher, just like a missionary who ain't called. Boop, you're gone. You're gone. That's exactly right. Hey, you know, there's easier, and, and, and I don't know what it is about that, but there's a lot of folk just looking for this never, never land church where everybody just holds hands and sings kumbaya all day. <laughs> I wish there was one of them. And I wish they needed a pastor. <laughs> That's right. And y'all stuck with me. <laughs> hey, listen. There's going to be little bumps every now and then, huh? But here's the thing, listen to me. The devil can shoot, but by golly, he can't have us. If we're called, we're in the house permanently. We are cemented in it. And sometimes it might not be fun. Sometimes it, you might not like it. But my golly, we have to say like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do nothing else. 
Because I've been called to this. Check out number next. I don't even know what number I'm on. It's gonna be, we're going to be doing good. We got out of verse 1 today. What does it take to build his house? Number one, it takes consecrated people, holy. It takes community people, partakers of a common experience. It takes called people. Now look here, I want you to, in between these next two, I want you to put another blank because somehow or another, when I printed this thing out, I didn't put enough of those blanks. So don't write this one in the blank that's next. Write this one in the blank that you're going to draw on your paper, okay? Here's what it takes. Number, number, number four, right? Number four is a write-in vote. <laughs> and here's what you're voting for. Considerate. What does it take to build his house? It takes considerate people. Now, notice what he says in verse number one. He says it like this. He simply says, consider Jesus. <laughs> consider Jesus. And it's the main verb in that sentence. So here's what he says. He says, basically, therefore, you folk that I'm writing to, consider Jesus. And here's what the word means. The word is built, the root word there is the word for mind. And what he's saying is, fasten your mind on Jesus. I mean, this writer's good at saying that. Some, some, some translations take this verse and say, fix your mind on Jesus. Anybody have that in their version? You know, he's going to say that again when he talks about our eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But here it's set your mind. Be considerate. And who do we consider? We consider Jesus. So here's what I have to ask myself. If the command for me as building material, as a living stone, as a block in his house, how much time does my mind spend considering Jesus? What am I thinking about? And by the way, have y'all taken note that there is an onslaught today for your attention? Everybody speaks in sound bites. There are commercials everywhere on the radio vying for you to think about this. On TV, on the internet, we are bombarded. So I have to ask myself this question. Where does my mind go when it has nowhere in particular to go? You see what I'm saying? I mean, look here, if I'm on a bulldozer working on a pretty steep ditch bank, guess where my mind is? It's what do I have to do to keep from turning this thing over? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking. But when I get that thing back on level ground and I'm off of it, where does my mind go? You better believe it does. <laughs> God, thank you for not letting this old boy kill himself today on that bulldozer. Huh? Where does your mind gravitate when you don't have something that's pressing for your thought and attention? And it's a pretty good test of our spirituality. Am I still thinking about my hopes and dreams? Or am I considering how I've been consecrated and set apart for His purpose? Does my mind gravitate toward Him? So what have we got so far? Here's what we ought to look like if we're going to be good building blocks in His house. Number one, we're consecrated. Number two, we're community people. Number three, we're called people. Number four, we're considerate people. But number five in verse number one is this. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah, it starts with a C. We are confessing people. Confessing people. Look what he says here. I, I like this. In verse number one, he says... Consider Jesus, and now he's going to give a description of Jesus. The apostle and high priest of what? Of our confession. So we are people who confess something. That is, we are confessing people. Now, I said last week, and I, I stand by it. I'm going to stick to the stuff. This is what I said last week. Remember I said, you don't have to believe just like I believe theologically to be a part of Grace Church. We are not trying to create spiritual clones here. Huh? I mean, my goodness, I, I told you back then, I, I disagree with myself sometimes. I mean, how in the world can I expect somebody else to agree with every jot and tittle of my secondary and tertiary theological points? 
really can't. And I don't expect you to. So no, you don't have to be a clone of the pastor to be a part of Grace Church. Who would want to live in a world like that? But you know what? There are some things that we must believe together. We must believe together. We must confess together. And that's the word that he uses here. The word that he uses is the word homo logeo. And it means to say the same thing. You know what that means? That means if all of a sudden Christianity was illegal and this morning the FBI burst into this place with guns and they said, we want to understand what it is y'all believe. And they began to take people into a little back room and interrogate you. You know what they'd get? They'd get the same thing from every one of us. Because we have a common confession. So what is it that we must have in common? Remember I said we're not trying to, at, we're not trying to create theological clones, but we must have a common confession. And that's what this guy's talking about here. So what is it? Well, right here in the context of this scripture, I think he tells us some things that we must. Hey, if we're going to be family, if we're going to be building blocks in the same building, then we've got to hold these things. Tell me if you can agree with them. Here we go. Number one, this passage tells us in context that God is creator. Now that's real controversial stuff right there, ain't it? Huh? But you know what? That is bottom line. If you don't have a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview starts with this, Dr. John. This thing just didn't happen by chance. It's far too intricate. One of my scholarly buddies says this. He says, all of this universe, so intricate and so dependent upon another part doing its exact part at just the right time is so intricate until the odds of that happening on its own are about the same as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and putting together a fully functioning 747 aircraft. But there are people who believe that. There are people who will take those odds. That's why Dr. John this Wednesday night is doing this thing on creation. He knows. He's been to college. And he's had his face shot at. How can you be so foolish as to believe that there is a being who created all of this? Well, if I considered foolish, count me in, Jack. I'm there. God is creator. Notice in verse number 4, here's what he says. For every house is built by someone... But the builder, look at this, of all things is God. I think in this context, he's telling us, giving us elements of what our common confession must be. Do you agree with that? Hey man, if we can't agree as Grace Church that God is the creator of everything, we're not going to make it very far, are we? Our house is going to fall. Check out number next. What else does our common confession say? Our common confession says... Not only that God is creator, but our common confession must be that Jesus is God. Huh? Now wait a minute, we just waded off into deep water, didn't we? I mean, we really did. Because when you begin to say that Jesus is God, then you begin to exclude some people, right? Because there are some faiths today that can't sit at the table as long as Jesus is served on that table is God incarnate. They'll get up and walk away. But son, that's what drink brings us to the table, is it not? What brings us to this table, what assembles us as a house, is the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Now, check this out. I mean, look what he did. I mean, he even brings the Trinity into this argument in, in verses uh, 3 and 4 of chapter number 2. I mean, notice what he does. He talks about in verse number 3 of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 4, he mentions God, there's God the Father. And then at the end of that verse, he references the Holy Spirit. So there you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Can we say this? Our common confession must be God is the creator of all things, that Jesus Christ is God, and that God are three. And He is one, or however you want to say it. It's bad grammar, but it's good theology. Man, I can't understand it. I can't explain it. But I'm telling you, the Scripture 
without doubt testifies to the fact that we serve a Trinitarian God. Well, check out number next. Here's what we've got to confess together. God is creator. Jesus is God. And number next, we must confess that Jesus came to earth. I mean, He didn't just remain aloof from His creation. He created it. Sin entered in by the choice of man. Things went awry. Thank God He doesn't throw us away, huh? And He took on flesh and blood. And He came to planet earth. How? Look what verse number 1 says. As the apostle. This is the only time in Scripture that this word is used in reference to Jesus Christ. You know what apostle means? Simply means sent one. He was sent from heaven to earth to rectify the mess that we made. To redeem us from the slave market of sin. He was sent, sent, sent. So Jesus came to earth as the apostle. And notice what it is also that it says that He did. Jesus came to earth as the apostle. Here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus is the message and the messenger. I mean, isn't that what He came to do? He's the apostle. He's the sent one with the message, but guess what? He is also the message. And here's the cardinal fact of what our common confession must include. That He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And no man comes to the Father except, y'all finish it with me, through or by Him. Now wait a minute. There are folk that won't sit at that table. You understand that, huh? A Muslim will not sit at that table. Because he is not going to say that there's only one way. Hey, you don't have to be religious. You can just be politically liberal and you won't embrace that fact. Because there's too many good people out there that's going to hell if Jesus is the only way. Huh? I'm telling you, He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. So Jesus came to earth as the apostle. He was the message and the messenger. But notice what else verse number 1 says. also says He's our mediator. He's our mediator. Now, you know, we've already mentioned the priesthood of the believers. Aren't you grateful to God that you don't have to find somebody who's wearing their collar backwards? to confess your sin. (laughs) Huh? One of my Old Testament professors pastored in uh, a little town just outside of New Orleans, Louisiana when he was in seminary. I'll never forget it. He said he had this woman in there and said uh, she'd come to church every now and then but she was one of them eclectic. She did a little bit of everything, you know. Mardi Gras and she's just sprinkling holy water everywhere hoping one of them would hit the right place, you know. So she got up one morning and she was going to confession. But before she was going to confession, she decided she'd stop through the supermarket. So she stopped in the supermarket and bought her groceries because she had a list she was looking off of. And then she went down to the confession and got in that phone booth and talked to, as one of my other professors said, talked to a knot head through a knot hole. (laughs) And she said, you know... It'd be easier if I just gave you my list of sins. I wrote them down and you could forgive me. So she took her list and rolled it up and stuck it through the knot hole. And from the other side, the voice came back and said, a carton of eggs, a gallon of milk, sliced cheese. She said, oh my God, I must have left my sins down at (laughs) Winn-Dixie. She got her list confused. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is our mediator? You don't have to go to confessional in order to be forgiven. You know what it takes? It takes simply saying, Dear God, I blew this thing. I stepped beyond the limits of your will. 
I said some things, I did some things that I shouldn't. And by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, I am broken over it. I, I repent. I won't do it again. And in Jesus' name, would you cleanse me of this and set me free of it? And that's what it takes. You know why? Because Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, for there's one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He's the one we go to. Check out number next. Not only is he our mediator, but he is also our maker. Notice with me how how this guy does this. He says in verse number 4, For every house is built by someone. The builder of all things is God. Now he begins to talk about Christ and Christ being the maker of his house. So you see these next three? You can really bump these next three on your outline under this point because they're subordinate to the fact that he is a, He's our maker. So how does He make us? Have you ever noticed when He found you, you were in pretty bad shape? Huh? Y'all remember that old song, I am the... You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. Well, that's literally what we're talking about here. He is our maker. And He's in the process of making me what He wants me to be. And by the way, that's better than I am right now. Do you know that? Hey, He's at work on me. He's making me. I ought to be better this time next year than I am right now. I ought to be better next week than I am now. He's our maker, right? He's the one making this house. So the question becomes, how does he make us? How does he make us? And this guy answers this in the form of a conditional sentence. It's if this, then this. Then this, if this. And that's what he does right here. Notice what he does in verse number 6. Here's what he says. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. See, Moses was just a servant. But Christ is the son over his house. Now notice what he says. Whose house we are. That is a verb of ontology, they call it. And that's not a form of cancer. That means being. This is a being verb. This is about who I am, who we are together. So here's what he says. He says, whose house we are, now here's the conditional part, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Now notice, this conditional part don't mean that you have it and you lost it. This conditional part means you have it if these things are true in your life. And if you have it, He's going to begin to show us how you can't lose it because you didn't do it, He did. So check out what he says. There's three things here. This is what he makes us. And this is how you know that you know that you're a part of his house. This is how you know that you know you've been born again, consecrated, set apart for his community purpose. Here it is. Number one, he makes us courageous people. Courageous people. Look with me in verse number six. Whose house we are if we hold fast... Hold fast. Here's that word. Let me show you. I've been to seminary. It's the Greek word parousia. And most every other time in Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, do you remember where Peter and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin and they were whipped and said, now don't speak anymore in that name? They go out in chapter 4 and here's what they said. They said, now God we pray that you give us parousia because we can't help but talk of the things which we've seen and heard. You know what they were asking for? It's translated as boldness. It's translated as courage. It's translated as bravery. It's all of those things. So here's how He makes us. You know how He makes us? He makes us courageous. He makes us courageous. Hey, we're not like the lion on the Wizard of Oz. You know what I'm saying? Ought not nobody be able to hide behind a curtain and say boo, and we run. We ought not. Because here's how He makes us. 
He makes us courageous. Now you know what that means? That means if your life was on the line, that means you'd stick with Christ rather than deny Him. That means if there was a man out there with a machine gun next Sunday said, I'm going to kill everybody who walks into this door because Christianity is no longer allowed in the United States of America, you know what we say? We say just like John and Peter, God, give us parousia. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Have you ever noticed that courage engenders courage in others? How do you think a war would go if the general got scared and turned around and ran? But what do you think happens when a General Patton stands up wearing one of them old hard hat military helmets and he's got a cigar sticking out the back of it and bombs are going off around him and bullets are flying all around him and he's standing there barking out orders. What do you think it makes his men want to do? You better believe it. Courage engenders more courage. That's why God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm telling you, if you'll stick by the stuff, you'll see your kids sticking by the stuff. If you stick by the stuff, you'll see folk around you sticking by the stuff. Because somebody just needs somebody else to be a little bit more courageous than me. And if they'll be more courageous than me, I'll be courageous with them. So he makes us courageous. Notice number next. i got to hurry. I'm running out of time. Woo, verse number one got us, didn't it? He makes us courageous people. Number two, he makes us convinced people. Or the, 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 the Scripture uses the word confident people. Look what he says here. If we hold fast our confidence, do you see that? Our confidence and boast of our hope. Now look, in the New Testament, hope doesn't mean wishful thinking. It means something that we are certain of. This is not fairy fairyland type of stuff. This is stuff that is just as much a reality as I'm standing here today. Heaven is real. Christ is coming. That's our blessed hope. And he says, we must be convinced. Hey friends, listen to me. If you're convinced of that, death is no threat to you. It's not. It can't nothing happen to you that ought to steal your courage and your confidence if we are convinced of the reality that we are headed for in Christ Jesus. Huh? I mean, my goodness. We're so convinced that if we weren't set apart for His purpose in this life and couldn't wait to see what He's going to do through us and in us tomorrow to bring glory to His name in this lost and dying world, why not we just pull a Jim Jones and drink the Kool-Aid? Huh? You see what I'm saying? is a reality. And he says that makes us confident people. And when we know where we're going, so there's no reason for us not to be courageous today. Check out final and I'm done. Here's what he makes us. He makes us courageous people. He makes us convinced people. And then finally he makes us continuing people. Look at, look at verse number 6. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast... I didn't even have time to talk about that, did I? And the boast of our hope firm until something better comes along. Firm until it gets tough. Hold firm until somebody hurts my feelings. God bless your pointed little head. Firm until whatever. No, he says, we are holding firm. There's no condition to it. We are holding firm. How do you know that you've been born again? Because, son, you can't let go. Hey, here's the good news. He's got a hold to you and he ain't going to let go. But you got a hold of him and you ain't letting go either. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That is the biblical doctrine that says, if you have been saved, you are always saved. 
Because saved people, get this, saved people don't quit. You know why they don't quit? Because Jesus is the one who makes us. And look at me. He has never made a quitter. How much honor and glory is it for Jesus if He makes a bunch of quitters? None. How much honor and glory is it if He makes a bunch of people who are courageous and convinced and are going to continue come hell or high water? I'm telling you, He's glorified by that. What does it take to build His house? Look around. That's what God's doing in your life. That's what God's doing in my life. The person sitting on your left side, they're building material. The person on your right, the person in back of you, the person in front of you. And son, when He puts us together for His purpose, His name is going to be glorified. Oh God, may it happen and happen in a big way at Grace Church Bonifay. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, would you help us be a house built of people whom you have made, set apart, called, and who fulfill their purpose in the kingdom of God, bringing honor and glory unto the one who's worthy of all honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. I pray for those, God, whom today you are calling with a heavenly calling to yourself. May today be the day that that calling is realized. I pray for those whom you're calling to be a part of the house that you are building. God, may today be the day that that calling is realized. Whatever you are doing, God, we pray that you're glorified because what you do is for our good and your glory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.